Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find The Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit sojo.net. Today I'm speaking with my dear friend, Wes Granberg-Michelson. He is the author of an extraordinary book called Without Oars. It's about pilgrimage, and I want to get back to that in a few moments. I've already done a conversation with Wes about the book, but I have been really, like many of you, wrestling with this deep crisis in the Middle East over these last several weeks, even more than before. And I've been listening to lots of people speak about this, but when I heard Wes's reflection, it was deeply centering and biblically rooted, and I thought a framework and a foundation for all the hard questions, which are very complicated about the Israelis and the Palestinians and how these two people can share the same land. And so I'm coming back to Wes, uh, who's a wonderful writer, author uh, about spirituality, faith, and politics on this particular question that we've been wrestling with Palestinians and Israelis and particularly how people of faith, many of us, can see this? How do we see this in the ways that we should to answer the hard questions which are hard and complicated? So so I am grateful, uh, Wes, for you being willing to share what you've been thinking and saying, which has been very, again, striking to me. And I'll just start by saying, uh, how's, your, how's your spirit these days? A question I always like to start with. How's your spirit these days, Wes? Well, you know, it's it, it's hard for all of us. Um, it's been a, a really heavy, uh, depressing time when we were in the middle of all the violence that was happening in the Middle East. And then at the same time, we're exiting from COVID with all the questions that that poses. And, uh, you know, we're exiting in this country. Other places around the world are at the opposite place. So it, it's a time where I think we're um, at least me, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm easily concerned about uh, many things going on that aren't going to be solved by the fact that now we can all take off our masks and uh, go have dinner with our friends, which I love to do. But that's, that doesn't kind of remove some of the other things that are before us. Well, Wes and I have been uh, enjoying that together <laughs> these last several days, uh, being together like we haven't been for a long time. And so uh, uh, the, the former General Secretary Emeritus now, the Reformed Church in America, Chair of Children's Board, author of many books, uh, is also a dear friend that we've been enjoying the chance to be, be together like we haven't had for a long time. And so I'm grateful for, for that. But I really have been, the question is, how do we as people of faith and how do Christians in America in particular, how do we see this Israeli-Palestinian struggle, how should we see all these questions? And when I heard you uh, reflect upon that, it was very uh, clarifying and centering for me. So I'd like you to share, Wes, if you would, with all our listeners here, how you think we should see this. 
Sure, thanks, Jim, and, and many thanks for this invitation. Um, it means a lot. I like to begin uh, biblically, and not just with proof texts or something, but you know, it's easy to jump into the politics and the geopolitics of this really complex issue. But I like to begin with something that frames it biblically. And I've turned back to Genesis 16 and the story of Hagar. And that to me is a starting point. I want to remind the listeners of what this is all about. Hagar was a foreigner from Egypt. She was the slave of Sarai. And if you recall, she has a child by Abraham. And this creates such a crisis that Sarah expels her. She's already been abused and rejected. Uh, it's almost like she's trafficked. She's now discarded, banished, and sent off as a refugee to the wilderness. And in that state of, of a real desperation, an angel of the Lord finds her. And it says in the scripture that the Lord sees her affliction and then makes an extraordinary promise that the offspring of Hagar will be multiplied beyond number. Hagar responds by calling God, this, this, this God whom she has now encountered, El Roy, which means the God who sees me, the God who sees me. And I think that's the essential challenge to ask in this conflict, do we see the people who are involved at the most grassroots level? Do we get beyond all the politics and do we actually see the people? And that brings me to say that for Americans and for U.S. Christians, we have to be honest and say, in this conflict, it's the Palestinian people who so often we have not seen. They are the ones who have been out of sight and out of mind. And I think recovering a basis for how we think about this conflict has to begin by seeing the Palestinian people and seeing all those involved in this conflict as we can, as God sees them, as God saw Hagar. And Hagar, of course, you know the rest of the story, becomes the mother of Ishmael. And the promise of many nations comes on the one hand, for one people to Abraham, the patriarch, but for the other people comes to this abused and desolate woman, Hagar. So the question is, do we see the people and do we see the Palestinian people? And, and here's the history, Jim. In 1948, when Israel was formed, out of the unimaginable horror of the Holocaust, one of the compelling slogans was a land for a people, a land without a people for a people without a land. A land without a people for a people without a land. But the problem was 
that was not true. There were 800,000 Palestinians in that land who became refugees. The international powers didn't see them. They didn't see the Palestinians who lived there. Many of those refugees went to Gaza and to camps in Lebanon. Uh, as Jim knows, uh, early in my career, I worked for U.S. Senator Mark Hatfield. And uh, Mark Hatfield was a person who pursued peace. Uh, like other politicians, he had made several trips to Israel when he was governor of Oregon. Uh, but he said to me, he, want, he wanted to go to Israel. And on this trip, he said, I'm, I'm going to go visit those refugee camps in Lebanon. When he came back, he said, there will never be any peace without solving the refugee issue. And we then worked on a major speech on the Senate floor around that. He previously hadn't seen the Palestinian refugees. Now he saw them. And that created, that created a different perspective. When Jim and I, um, a few years later, were involved in the very early years of sojourners, Jim, you'll remember in the 1970s when, when Jim Zogby came by, uh, a Lebanese Christian. In fact, it was interesting. I just had lunch with Jim Zogby today, all these years later. Jim Zogby came by the office and said, um, I am founding the Palestine Human Rights Campaign because we have to be able to see the Palestinian people as having God-given dignity and rights, just like the Jewish people and every other people in that land. It made a deep impression. And the other person whom we remember who came by in those years was Jonathan Katab, another Palestinian Christian. He had been working on Wall Street, but he came to tell us he was going back to Israel-Palestine and to work for peace in that land. He wanted, he wanted to help show the American community and the Christian community the realities on that ground. He just recently came out with a book, Beyond the Two-State Solution, and is the co-founder of Nonviolence International. He was one who helped us see what was on the ground. Uh, I know uh, many have been on uh, various tours to the Holy Land, often sponsored by evangelical groups. I've been to the Holy Land three times. I love going there, love going to the Galilee. It's, it's deeply meaningful. But I've also seen so many of the tour groups who go and they visit Jerusalem, they visit the Galilee, they visit modern Israel, but they never see the Palestinian people. And particularly, they don't see the Palestinian Christians who have lived in that land since Jesus did. And often, in those times, their image of Palestinians was that of a terrorist. Uh, I know Jim would probably remember a mutual friend, Elias Shakur, a Palestinian uh, Christian who was living actually in a village in Israel, 
He wrote the book Blood Brothers. It was a very popular book uh, in, in several circles about reconciliation. Uh, I had him come to our uh, church at that time. My wife and I were out in Missoula, Montana, and I, and I remember he came to address us. He was wearing a, you know, a, a, a suit and tie, and he would open up his suit and he would say, see, I am not a terrorist. He, he, he was wanting us to see the Palestinian people for who they really are instead of all the stereotypes. Um, you know, when we look at the uh, realities today with Israeli settlers on the West Bank and what is called the occupied territory, there are now 700,000 Israeli settlers in the right bank, on, on, the, on, on, on the West Bank. Um, and the way those settlements are constructed with their private roads and gated communities often up above, they don't want to see the Palestinians that are on the ground. Uh, in the midst of the conflict uh, recently between Israel and Palestine, uh, I thought it was almost symbolic that for whatever reasons, the Israelis destroyed the press building in Gaza that had most of the world press centered there, BBC, AP, others. Whatever their intent was, it made it harder for the world to see the Palestinians on the ground who were suffering. After the murder of George Floyd, I was so struck that the image of George Floyd appeared on the separation wall between Israel and Palestine and the West Bank. The first place it appeared, I remember, was by Bethlehem. It was on, it was on the Palestinian side. If you put graffiti on the Israeli side, it would, get, it would get whitewashed. But on the Palestinian side and then other places in the occupied territories, George Floyd's image appeared again and again a connection was being made right away between race and human rights in the United States, but then in Palestine and the Israeli-occupied territories. Now, no analogy is perfect. We, we know that. But the question was, did we see the human dignity of Palestinian lives did those lives matter as we try to resolve these issues? And here, I think there's another thing in common, and it's the way scripture has been misused in many Christian evangelical circles to erase the rights and the place of Palestinians in Israel. You've seen what I would really call a contortion and a misuse in interpreting parts of scripture that more or less come with the conclusion that Palestinian lives in that territory really aren't of any significance. It's, it's, it's the prophetic import of the resettlement of that land by the Jewish lives, which is the only lives that matter. And that is similar to the way in which scripture was misused in order to deny the humanity of slaves and their descendants within the United States and the ongoing force of white supremacy 
it's this it's this tension between the human rights and dignity of all and getting to the core of biblical interpretation instead of allowing the misuse of the bible which which erases the god-given dignity of people now as jim indicated uh we begin by asking, do we see everyone? Do we see the Palestinians who are there? And do we see the Jewish people who are there? Do we understand the deep connection of the people from the Jewish background and identity to that land? Because for Jews, Israel is not simply a nation. Israel is the continued existence of a people threatened by persecution and annihilation. And you've got to understand the basis of that fear. That doesn't give you a political solution. That doesn't justify everything. But you have to understand that fear. And especially when you see signs of growing anti-Semitism. And at the same time, you've got to recognize other realities. You've got, to, you've got to recognize that Gaza is ruled by Hamas, which has demonstrated this commitment to indiscriminate terror, to war crimes. Um, and you, you've got to be honest and say the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank has proven itself to be dysfunctional, corrupt. It, you, you don't see uh, inspiring political leadership coming from there. And you've got to look at Israeli politics and see now, especially in the recent uh, emergence of a new coalition, which gives legitimacy to the most extreme right-wing parties. It's the same people who march through the streets chanting death to Arabs. Uh, I mean, you've got to recognize all those realities. And in my view, I agree with Jonathan Katab on this, I think the impact of settlements in the West Bank have now meant that a two-state solution is virtually impossible. And so we have to look at much deeper and more challenging questions. How do we envision a nation in which Jewish people have secured a right to their own ongoing ability to thrive and where Palestinian people are treated with full human rights and dignity? How do we make that happen together? I think over the next decades, that is the challenge that is before us. But where we begin, where we begin, is not in all the geopolitics, uh, not in, you know, the ceasefire. I mean, you know, the thing is, Jim, we, we, there were every day the headlines were about Israel-Palestine, then the ceasefire came, and now there's hardly a word in the press about Israel-Palestine. We're not seen the conflict anymore. The grassroots voices and organizations that are on the ground, committed to nonviolence, committed to finding a way forward, those, those are the people on both sides that offer some hope. And I think all this begins by going back to biblical roots and remembering the story of Hagar remembering the one who was abused, rejected, discarded, forced to flee, not seen, abandoned in the wilderness, but God sees her. And she says, this is the God who sees me. We want to be able to see with God's eyes.
And that, I think, Jim, is the place where we have to begin. Thank you, Wes. Uh, Very helpful and grounding indeed. I heard a number of people say during this conflict that the extremes are winning. They would say the extremes have won. And by that, they meant uh, Netanyahu and Hamas, who they regarded as extremes. And both of those extremes were trying to gain power and have (laughs) in the course of all this. And uh, which, of course, is the worst of our politics in any situation where the extremes win. And I was just thinking as you were talking, the the extremes win by preventing people from seeing the other, uh, the other side, uh, the enemy, or who are really our neighbors, or even if our enemies, Jesus says, to love our enemies, as if they're our neighbors. So uh the extremes seem to win when we're not seeing each other don't they i i mean i think that's right jim and i think it's, i think that's exactly what happened um um you know it if you trace the actual roots to the conflict um what sparked it this time were the uh evictions of Palestinian families in East Jerusalem who had been there since 48 and 67 and now suddenly were being thrown out and their, um, and, and their homes were going to be given to Israelis. And there was nonviolent protests, especially young people on social media and so forth that were trying to raise alarm. And, and it looked for a while that there was going to be movement, you know, in civil society on the ground. It was, it was looking very hopeful. Um, but then the extreme stepped in. Hamas stepped in trying to see a way for them to um, uh, gain influence, tried, you know, trying to be the, the champion. And so they start firing rockets. Uh, Netanyahu and his government moves in with, uh, with the kind of response that is you know, 20 to 1 in terms of civilian casualties. Um, and, and, and Hamas seems to gain power, not Netanyahu, and, and others representing his same perspective gain power in Israel, and, and neither, neither of those extremes are at all interested in compromise, in negotiation. And so you, you, have, to, you, know, you have to try to start at a different level. You have, you have to say, we can't, we, we're not going to put faith in, 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 in powers that are simply after their own ends and have no interest in a, in, in a solution that's going to be holding the hope of reconciliation, uh, we got to begin by empowering those on the ground who can eventually find a new way forward. And, uh, and I also think it relates, of course, to U.S. policy, because, because uh, as long as U.S. policy is seen as completely one-sided and only in support of the Israeli position, that's going to, uh, and what that has done historically is that it just allows that one side to dig itself in and to and and, and to see no incentive to uh, to change, and and as a result, the other extreme feels equally dug in. So, if you were, you know, when the media presented this as uh, Hamas firing rockets, indeed, at civilians indiscriminately, and then the Israelis retaliating in such an uh, uh, overwhelming, massive way and the disproportionate numbers and suffering on all sides was reported, but 
you know, no uh, parents that I know if we were in uh, Tel Aviv would want your, your, your teenage kids at a dis- discotheque uh, fired on by rockets. And so people see that and say, well, of course, it, people have to defend themselves against. But the whole situation of the injustice that you describe in the nonviolent protest of it, which is how this started, uh, wasn't covered for quite a while in the media, then, then talked about some, but it's always the the extremes that are covered. And you, you make a very good point that since the ceasefire, there's been no no talk about uh, the the conflict. Yeah, and I'm really I'm really worried about. It. I mean, you know, the criticism of media, of course, within the states is you know common. It's uh, if it if it bleeds, it leads. You know, uh, if there's violence, it grabs the headline, and 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 the violence between Hamas and Israel was grabbing all the headlines. And and yes, it was those in um, uh, is, Israelis who would definitely feel threatened by these indiscriminate rockets coming. And then it was Palestinians who, you know, these stories, I remember one story that would just break your heart, this compassionate emergency physician who was in the, you know, known for the lives that he saved and, and the, the, the day and night service, even before the bombardment, but, you know, it was just revered. And he, you know, he's working like 20 hour days. He goes home to take a break and his house is bombed and he and his family are killed. I mean, it, you know, yeah, it, it, unless we, unless we see those realities on the ground, I, um, I, I just don't think we're going to get very far. And, and, uh, yes, I'm, I'm very grateful that the rocket stopped and that there was a ceasefire, but what I'm very worried that uh, that now, you know, the real story is no longer before us, and we're still not seeing what we need to see if we are going to have a hope of resolving this. You know, for both of us, we've both been to uh, the Middle East, the Holy Land, as it's called, and been deeply moved by it. We both love Galilee, especially, and the Sermon on the Mount, that little, it's not really a mount, a mount, a little hill alongside the Sea of Galilee, where the Beatitudes were proclaimed by Jesus. It's a, to me, it, just sitting there, imagine him saying those things is very moving to, to me. But, but you know, I we both had the chance to, to see and talk to uh, Israeli uh, parents, let's say parents, who, who are Israelis for peace and yet worry about their kids under, under rocket attack. And then the retaliation, I remember being in a Palestinian home uh, that was in a previous conflict uh, where the, you know, the, the bombs came in, the Israeli rockets back and missiles back. And, and these two kids were in their own room and they got scared and ran into their parents' room and jumped in the bed with their parents. And I was in the house afterwards and the kids' room had been totally destroyed, <laughs> hit by a bomb, and they they were still all alive, still, thankfully, but only with the kids, with their parents in bed, you know, hiding under the bed. <laughs> but the room was the kids' room was destroyed. You know, so seeing that, and seeing parents and kids in particular on all sides, 
is the only way we're, we're going to get to what Jonathan Kataba, I have his book here on my desk, and others are trying to find as a way forward. You mentioned grassroots a couple of times, and my experience of how a lot of young people, even talking about the arts or other things, are building the relationships where people actually can see each other or hear each other or listen to each other, but the leaders at the top on both sides don't see and almost want the rest of the world not to see who they're, they're attacking. So how does this happen? How do we, how can this be bottom up? How can there be grassroots civil society? How can be the young people that are, you know, the, uh, I've heard stories from friends, mutual friends of ours about Palestinian teenagers up living on a hill in a settlement and looking down the hill and seeing these, these Palestinian villages that have no water and they have sprinklers and golf courses on the hill and, and they want to know what's going on with those Palestinians. And they, like me as a teenage kid in Detroit, realizing something was terribly wrong, they moved here as infants over from their parents moving from America to, to there. And now some of those young Jews are talking to young Palestinians about finding a way forward. Now, that's the place of hope that I find, the dialogue that I and because I'm not looking to the leadership on either side at this, this, this point. How do we su- support that? Or how do we encourage people uh, that grassroots you talk? What, what is that grassroots and where's it going? Yeah, I think there's two things, Jim. I think uh, there's a, there's a government side and the private side. I think, I think that um, now you're, you know, you're getting some discussion in the corridors about, uh, about aid and, but and it's really ironic. Um, uh, the, um, I know USAID is uh, talking about uh, how do we put together a kind of an aid package to address the refugees in Gaza, and then, and then I heard today that uh, the Netanyahu government has now uh, apparently it's just asking the U.S. government for one an additional one billion dollars in addition to the seven hundred and sixty-seven million that was just sent, another billion uh, to help with their uh, to help with their reconstruction, so-called. Um, if we, you know, the U.S. in other situations is able to help um, promote and channel aid in ways that strengthen civil society, in ways that strengthen the ability of uh, of people to to gather and to uh, express themselves and to be engaged in in a creative uh, political uh, participation. Um, you, you don't you don't hear that when people talk about policy. You know, the debate is: I mean, should we give Israel more military weapons? Um, um, sh- sh- you know, should we should we somehow help uh, the um, uh, Palestinian Authority in the West Bank pay the salaries of the four hundred thousand employees? Uh, what what we need to ask is how can how can we and with our other allies. Um, do what's possible to open up space in civil society. That's desperately needed. And then at the private level, and this is probably more important for those listening to the podcast, uh, we've got to figure out how we how we make links and give space to those voices on the ground. It makes a difference when they are heard beyond their context. You take a person like Mitri Rahib, um, the uh, Lutheran pastor who for many years was pastor of the of the Bethlehem Church, the so-called Bethlehem Christmas Church, and who did 
and who did one amazing project after another. Um, I remember you once said when I, you know, when I see the latest, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the latest onslaught, the latest uh, um, indefensible action by Israeli in the occupied territories, instead of getting mad, I just build another project. Um, there, are, there are countless people like that on the ground. Um, it helps when there are links to the Christian community within the United States. It helped the fact that Elias Shakur was, you know, would, would come over and go on, go on tour and speak to groups. We had Mitri Rahib come speak to our general synod. Um, there, there are a, a wide number of voices. And then beyond the Christian community, because the Christian community is a small minority, um, the, 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 you know, the power of grassroots actions between Israelis and Palestinians, you've got groups like um, uh, parents who have lost children on both sides to violence, who have bonded together in, in, in parent groups uh, uh, in order to have a political force in both their societies. Uh, you've got people like Jeff Halper in Israel who are constantly working against the, this demolition of houses. You know, you talk, Jim, about the bombs that will hit in a time of violence. What people don't realize is that Israeli homes are continually destroyed by actions Israeli takes when they say, you didn't have a permit, this home doesn't belong here. Um, there was an Israeli family in 1932 who lived here or whatever. You know, that that kind of quiet demolition goes on, go, well, goes on continually. <laughs> They're literally, yeah. literally bulldozed. Uh, and, and, but there are, there, there are grassroots people uh, with, within Israel and within Palestine who are really working in response to that. And I, I think we have, to, we have to build the links with them. Um, I, I've, I've worked for some time uh, with you know, those, who, uh, those who sponsor tour groups to the Holy Land. You know, and say, I think it's wonderful you're taking Christians to the Holy Land. And I think it's wonderful that you see this. I think it's wonderful that you see modern Israeli society, but don't dare go there and not see the body of Christ that's there. How dare you? Well, the Palestinian body of Christ. Exactly. <laughs> Which is often unknown to even exist in American yeah. Christianity. And Jeff Halper, you mentioned, is, is Jewish, and he would, mm -hmm. he would yes. literally sit yes. in front of the bulldozers. Yes, and then they would pick him up and re remove him. Mm -hmm. uh, but and because he was Jewish, they'd often just remove him, but wouldn't attack him. And then he would go back and sit there again, <laughs> you know. So there are there are Jewish Jewish peacemakers on the ground that are often need support as well. There, are, I mean, we say, yeah, we say that no analogy is perfect, and I believe that. But you know, I with your history, especially Jim. Uh, you go back to the time of the civil rights movement and you look, you know, you look back in the late 50s and the early 60s, and especially as the civil rights movement began. No one was putting any, any, any confidence in, you know, who the governor of Alabama, uh, the governor of Mississippi, even the president of the United States. That, you know, it was what can we do at, at, uh, on the ground in order to demonstrate what the reality is so people would see and then finally respond. But I, I think that's the kind of situation we're in today when we look at the Middle East. And, and you identified, rightly so, naming it the, the Jewish fear of annihilation. Mm -hmm. From the horror of the Holocaust to the anti-Semitism, which has been sparked again on both the right and the left in American politics, 
and and the reality of that, and you know, the experience of what happens to a synagogue in Pittsburgh in the last year, uh, addressing and respecting that deep fear, uh, Jewish fear of annihilation, has to be a part of this as well. Seeing that as well, I agree. That's why, that's why I emphasize that because it's. I think you know. I think often if you if you view the conflict simply in political terms and don't get to these deeper realities of, you know, just uh, superficial political solutions are not going to do it. You, 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 you know, you have to get to this deeper level and, and, and as you look at both of the primary peoples who are involved. And despite, uh, you know, you and I in this conversation, which is coming to an end, uh, don't have the, the political answers to solve this and nor are we the the right people who will find those answers um uh for 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 sure but it's it's we won't find the answers unless we go back to your biblical foundation to hagar unless those who are trying to find the answers are really seeing (laughs) seeing the people who are on the ground you know jim it's i mean it's something we've all known and preached but you know you in any situation, you look at those who are on the margins, you look at those who have been forgotten, you look at those who have been displaced, uh, you look at those who have been abused, and you remind yourself that, as Hagar discovered, these are the people whom God sees in a special way. And you keep going back to that question. And let's let's go back, let's finally go back to what Hagar, that word she used in her prayer to God. For God. Tell us again what that was. Elroy, the God who sees me. The God who sees. So the God who sees. That, that, that's what she called God. That was the name for God. The, the name God for God is me. the God who, who sees. And I know in South Africa, some of the hello and back and forth is, is I see you in Swahili. So we have to, we, we have to be the people of God who see. If the God who sees me that's so powerful that that reflection back to Hagar's prayer. So we have to be the people of God who see. So thanks for that. Now, last time we talked about pilgrimage and without oars in your wonderful book, which is as wonderful as ever. But now it seems to me with we're all coming out of COVID, so we're all gonna, you know, all the traveling <laughs> that stopped or was is how do we. How do we, you know, some of the insights in your book could help us to, how do we travel, again, not as tourists, but as pilgrims? How, how can we travel in a different way, whether it be around our city or around the world? How can we learn to travel no longer as just tourists, but really as people who are, who are, who are on pilgrimages and being changed by them? Yeah, you know, Jim, there's a lot of uh, discussion about, well, we just return to the normal. And I think more and more people are realizing we don't want to return to the normal. We want to return to something new. And it applies in all these areas. Uh, the book is Without Oars, Casting Off into a Life of Pilgrimage. And, um, you know, I wrote it and sent it in right before COVID hit. And then I wondered, how is COVID going to affect it? And the interesting thing is that now... Uh, It came out uh, just at the end of last year. Now the response I'm getting is that this is helping people figure out how they emerge out of COVID because they 
they emerge as pilgrims. They emerge as people who now want to set off with new eyes, want to be open to what comes before them, want to appreciate uh, things they've missed before. And, and even more specifically, I, I, you know, I've repeated what uh, uh, you've said. Uh, I've been asking people, when we start traveling again, are we going to travel just as normal tourists or are we going to travel as pilgrims? Uh, are we going to make pilgrimages? I, I mean, in light, of, in light of all that's happening with racial reckoning, I'm recommending to people they make pilgrimages to, um, to, to the Deep South, that they go to Birmingham. They go to the 16th Street Baptist Church, to the Civil Rights Museum. Uh, they go to Montgomery. They go. They go. They, they they go to the Center for Peace and Justice. They go see what Brandon Stevenson has done in that amazing place. They, I mean, they 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 travel to places with. Well, I put it this way: my definition of pilgrimage is a journey with a holy purpose to a place of spiritual significance. What if we started doing that? when we could travel again. We want to come like I have done here. I want to come see my grandkids, all that, of course. But what if we thought of travel as not going to, you know, not going to the beach in Mexico to drink margaritas, but traveling with holy purpose to places of spiritual significance. Traveling with holy purpose to places of spiritual significance. Your book is all about that. But hopefully uh, we can be more about that coming out of COVID. And your book is a tremendous resource for that. What's the website for the book that you want to find more information? Uh, the easiest way is to go to my website. Uh, easy to remember. It's westgm.com. That's all you need. Westgm.com and you'll get everything you need. Okay. Westgm.com. Thank you, westgm.com. Thank you, Wes, <laughs> for you, jo- joining us here to today for more soul of a nation updates don't forget to subscribe rate and review and follow me on twitter at jim wallace if you'd like to blessings to all of you for the soul of a nation